Good morning. It's good to see you today. Happy Father's Day. Dads, we're thankful for you and glad that you're here with us and thankful for the work of Jesus in your life and the way that he's using you to point your kids and your family to him. Uh, Just like I said on Mother's Day, even though I'm a dad, I'm going to say this too, we're glad that you're here and happy Father's Day, but today's not about you. (laughs) We're not here because of you or for you. We're here because of Jesus and for him. And so we're going to do what we usually do today here in a few minutes. We're going to read a chapter of the Bible together. We're going to ask God to teach us by his spirit. Um, And we're going to read something today that's pretty familiar for a lot of us. If you've grown up knowing Bible stories at all, we're going to do the story of David and Goliath. Uh, But one of the things I really like about taking a familiar story and then reading it in a way where we're really intentional and deliberate about saying, hey, this is about God. First and foremost, this is going to teach us something about God, is that when you read a really familiar story that you've heard your whole life, a lot of times we've never asked that question about it. What's this teach us about God? Especially David and Goliath. We read and we look at David as this hero, this brave, courageous guy, and we think, how can I be like David? And I think when we read today, if you're really listening for what does this teach us about God, you'll see really, really clearly that this story tells us that it should be about God, that it's not about David. I think it would be really helpful for us to see that, but that's what we're going to read. But because it is Father's Day, Sydney has been asking uh, for a while if she could come up and help me with some of the truths about God. Like she wants to write down a few of them that you all say at the beginning. And I told her I thought we could do that for Father's Day. And then David and Goliath is Emery's favorite story. And so I told them they could come up here while we read this story, they're going to give us a truth each. So they're going to start with theirs, and they're going to write down a couple of yours, and then they'll go back and sit down because they didn't want to be stuck up here for like 45 minutes. So girls, you can come on up. And then they really bargained with me on this. They're like, well, if we're going to be on stage, there's something that we want to do for Father's Day. They claim this is for me. And so they, they wanted me to give them the freedom, and I told them they could do this, so just stand right here and do it, girls. They wanted me to give them the freedom to start off with the Macarena, and supposedly that's my Father's Day gift, so... Happy Father's Day. Here we go. (laughs) All right. So, today is an Old Testament narrative. Just so you know, for the next couple weeks, uh, next week Keith is going to teach for us, and the week after that, Darren Foster, and they're going to do a couple of narratives from the Gospel of John, so we're get an Old Testament narrative this week, gospel narratives next week from the life of Jesus. And then um, in July, when I start teaching again, we're going to jump into the book of Ephesians. And that'll be the next book that we work through uh, verse by verse. For those of you that were here for Acts, you know, that was 28 chapters. Ephesians is only six, so you can breathe easy and think, hey, we'll get through that at least a little bit faster than we got through Acts. Um, And then a little bit later on, uh, Lou Beltran is going to jump in probably to John and do a a gospel narrative for us. And then a couple weeks after that, uh, Adam Alm is going to teach for us as well. So I'll be walking through Ephesians with you, and they'll probably be walking through some of those narratives. Just so you know where we're headed over the next couple of months or so. And if you want to start reading ahead, uh, you can feel free to do that. But today we're in 1 Samuel 17. If you want to turn there on your devices or in your Bibles. It's going to be on the screen. It's also in uh, your bulletin there if you just want to read off of that. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. Listen to what does this teach us about God. That's going to be our starting place. And then growing out of that, if these things are true about God, if this is who God is, what's God saying to us today? Because of who he is, how is he speaking to our hearts? How does he want to apply the truth of who he is to our lives, to this church? What does it mean for us if this is who our God is? And so I'm going to pray right now. And I'm going to ask God uh, to reveal himself to us and teach us by his spirit, and then we'll read together. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Father, that you have acted in history, that you have moved and worked and done things where we can see you and know you. And then thank you that you've given us the Bible to tell us what you've done, and then to tell us how to understand it, to tell us what it means about you, what we should learn about you because of what you've done. And I pray that you'll do that right now, Father, as we read this story. Teach us by your Spirit, from your Word, as only you can. Open up the truth of your Word to us, and open us up to the truth of your Word. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. 
All right, 1 Samuel 17. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you'll become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they'd been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go. And the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. 
I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, As surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. All right, girls, you all go first. What's that teach? <laughs> she wants to know how I stand up this long. <laughs> I saw you yawn several times. It was hard on you, wasn't it? <laughs> you hung in there, though. Both of you did. I'm proud of you. What's this teach us about God? Who, who wants to go first? Does that mean not you? Yeah. All right. Jesus loves us, okay? God is always there, okay? You want to write that down? You can write that down. God is always there. Think about the story, Sydney. What else does it teach us about God? Does that work in memory? Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to add? God always helps us. I like that one. You're good. That's okay. It's way neater than what I write, and they act like they can read mine. Let's add one more E on the end, all right? God is always there. Did you say God always helps us? Oh, that's okay. There you go. Don't put that hand on it. Just, yeah. There you go. God is always there. God always helps us. Do either one of you add another one? Because they're going to start talking, then I'm going to talk. What else you got? And you all be done. What else you got? Say it. It's all about God, not me. <laughs> it's all about God, not you. <laughs> there you go. Did you say you had another one? We done? All? You can write there first, too, yeah. And then I'll let you go sit down since you've been up here so long. All right, they've got us off to a good start here. They've primed the pump. 
What's this teach us about God? They're both going to write down one and then of yours, I mean. What else stood out to you? God is always there to help you fight the biggest battles. It's not about you, Y-O-U. There you go. It's about God. That's okay. All right, Sydney, do you want to write that next one down for us? God is always there to help you fight the biggest battles. Then do you want to write one more down? Okay. They're so much better with a screen than I am. It's like it's just natural to them. Mm-hmm. Battles. She said it is. <laughs> All right. Another truth about God? Oh, we got a bunch. Yeah, um, you've got the, the Philistines who Goliath is obviously the biggest, the strongest, uh, has the biggest armor and the biggest weapons. And then even the Israelites, they think the answer is, how do we find somebody with strength, skill, size, armor, weapons that can match this? And it's just, you know, here, here's this big worldly answer. We need a bigger worldly answer, and we don't have that, so we can't face him. And then David shows up and he says, it's none of that. I don't need bigger armor. I don't need more skill. I don't need more strength. I don't need more size than Goliath. I don't need more ability. What I need is God, <laughs> that God is the answer. Um, and there's probably 10 different truths we can pull out of that, but we can just say that God is the answer. You can write that down. Sure. That's a good start. And I was even thinking in terms of we don't need she told me that's so sloppy a better version oops a better version of the world or a better version of us, like it's not, okay, here's this, Can, how do we make this better? <laughs> how do we make a better warrior than Goliath? Or how do I make myself a better warrior? How do I get better armor? That's not what we need. What we need, we don't need a better version of the world or a better version of us. We need God <laughs> that, to see that he is the answer. Um, and, and this boils down to what faith really looks like, to trust God, to say I'm not going to look to human answers and human resources, worldly answers, worldly resources. I'm not going to say the best thing that could happen to me is to get the best version of this stuff. I'm going to turn away from all that. I'm going to die to that. I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to stop trusting myself and stop trusting the world. And I'm going to turn to God. And I'm going to say that God is contrasted, really, set over against all of this. And instead of trusting that, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to let go of all that and cling to him. You want to go sit down if you want to. You've written a bunch. Is that good? Thank you. Thank you for your help, and thank you for the Macarena. Happy Father's Day. What else stands out to you? Uh, 
Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, and let's, let's chase both those into two truths right here that when, physically when we do look at David, obviously he doesn't compare to Goliath, but he also doesn't compare even to his older brothers or any of the soldiers in Saul's. He doesn't compare to Saul. You know, when you read that the Israelites choose Saul as their king, the reason they choose Saul is because he's the tallest and the most handsome, and he looks the most externally like a king, <laughs> And David David's the youngest in his family, the smallest. He's disregarded. You know, he, he's the one that gets sent out to take care of the sheep while his brothers come to fight the battle. And so we would say, you know, even what we would look at externally, that God, God chooses someone here that the world would never choose. And there, I mean, there's a deep truth in that of God just over and over and over throughout Scripture, throughout history, and in your life and my life today in this world of God choosing people who are rejected by the world, who are outcast to the world, who are failures in the world's eyes. God choosing people who don't have the ability to do it on their own because, and, and as David says it over and over and over, then you'll know that there's a God in Israel. Then you'll know that the battle is the Lord's. Then you'll know that the Lord saves and the Lord wins his battles. You will know when David defeats Goliath, you'll know God did it. If Saul defeats Goliath, you might think Saul did it. You might think, what a great king we have. Let's keep following this king. Let's he can win all the battles for us. And you trust Saul instead of trusting God. And God basically says, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not going to share my glory with Saul. I'm not going to let you think that human resources can save you. I'm not going to let you think that humans on their own, in their own strength, can do my work. And so he chooses somebody who clearly, obviously, is the least likely. The one who can't do it. So, and I mean, we could write it a thousand different ways, but God chooses people, we slash the world, would never choose. God uses people to do things we cannot. I mean, I mean that like literally, we cannot do on our own. God chooses people. to do what only he can do. And that's just that's three different ways of saying the same thing. If you need a second to write, it was God chooses people that we and the world would never choose. Like he, he's basing this on, some, on the things we don't think about. We look for strength, and we look for people who look impressive and who have the most skill and the most ability and the biggest armor and the biggest sword and blah, 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 blah. And he looks for the weakest and the most unlikely and the smallest and the youngest and the one that's not even a warrior. Listen, do you know what good news that is for us? Like every week when I tell you, God will use you to make disciples. God will use you to build his church. God will use you to speak this glorious gospel truth about who Jesus is and what he has done, how he came to save the world. He will use you to change people's hearts and change people's lives and advance his kingdom. I'm not saying that because I've got so much confidence in you or in me. In one way, I guess you could take it as an insult because I'm saying that you and I are weak enough and poor enough and unlikely enough and rejected enough and have such little spiritual ability that we qualify for God to use us because that's the type of people he uses. And it's a compliment to him. 
It's, it's trust in him. It's this belief of he has done this over and over and over and over and over. And the most unlikely people in the world haven't stopped him from accomplishing his purposes. That's exactly how he accomplishes it. So why not you? Why not me? Why wouldn't this be the exact way that he pours out his spirit and he keeps building his kingdom and we would look and say, the only reason that happened is because God did it. The battle was the Lord's. And he always wins his battles. So God chooses people that we would never choose. God uses people to do things we do things we cannot do on our own. This also means that if we look at the way we function as a church or, or you look at your life and everything in your life or everything that we do in a church, we can pretty much do without God, then we aren't trusting God. Like if we set up this system where it's like, here's our programs, here's the people that can run them, here's the things that we're going to accomplish, here's the things that we can measure, and hey, we're checking off all the boxes, and it's going just the way we've got planned. And we can do that. Like If the Holy Spirit weren't here and we could function exactly the way we do, then it's not a spiritual work that's being done. But when we look at things and we say, either God will do this or it won't happen. God will show up and rescue us or we will not win. Like when you're in those places, those are the places God does show up. And those are the things that God does. And those are the places God's calling us to say, come and trust me that I will do this. And, and, and how many times does he come out of nowhere? Like nobody's sitting there 40 days in a row thinking, when's God going to send a shepherd boy with a slingshot and kill this giant? <laughs> Nobody sees that as the answer, right? That's not what they're waiting on. But God shows up at a, at a time and a place with an answer that no one else in the entire world would have ever come up with. And he says, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to deliver you. And I'm going to do it in a way when you know that it's me. God chooses people to do what only he can do. Even when he uses David here, don't get confused and think, well, he chose David because David, no. <laughs> he didn't choose David because of what David could do. He chose David because of what David clearly couldn't do on his own. That if God doesn't use David to kill Goliath, David never kills Goliath. It just doesn't work that way. And so all that's just, as far as in this story, on the physical side of it. Now we do have this spiritual side where, obviously, we all know most of us anyway, maybe some of you are only children, but we, most of us know what sibling rivalry is like and how you can love your siblings and also say the worst things about them within like five seconds of time. Um, and so, you know, this stuff coming out of Eliab's mouth here may not all be exactly accurate or true. I'm sure that he's got his own issues, but also usually your family knows you pretty well. <laughs> and, and your siblings, they've seen what's in your heart and in your life over and over and over. And probably the reason that he chooses, first of all, by the way, do you see him minimizing what David's done in his life? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? Like The only thing we've ever done with you is send you out in the wilderness to watch a few sheep because you can't even be trusted with a whole bunch of sheep. I mean, David is nothing in his brother's eyes. And then I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. Again, some of that may be sibling rivalry, but also some of that's probably is you have been a conceited, spoiled little brat our whole life. You've been an obnoxious youngest child, and they're like, this is true. Like, I guarantee you this is in David's heart. And that's the point here is that so often we set David up like this great, grand hero, even though we get plenty of evidence later in David's life that he's never been a perfect, great, grand hero. And it makes it so hard for us later to deal with how could this great guy mess up that much? Well, here's the answer, because he was never this great guy. <laughs> he was never the Savior. He was never the answer. This is God choosing somebody who didn't deserve to be chosen. Listen, if God didn't choose people who don't deserve to be chosen, God wouldn't choose anybody. <laughs> there isn't anybody else. Like if you say, okay, God's going to choose somebody who's not wicked in his heart. Well, we're, story's over. We're done. Right? Like, do, we, do we really believe that part of the gospel? That, that we are so much worse. The sin in our heart is darker and blacker and deeper than we would ever dare to believe about ourselves. 
until God comes and reveals it and speaks to us and says, this is who you really are, and this is how bad it is. It's so bad that the only hope you have is for me to send someone that you've never expected, you never saw it coming. The greater son of David, the greater David, that the son of God himself, Jesus, the one who actually doesn't have sin in his heart, isn't wicked in his heart, the only one who ever wouldn't deserve to die, that God would send him and that your sin in your heart is so awful that the only hope to save you is for Jesus, the son of God, to die for you. That's how bad off you are. That's how bad off it is. And then God would say, and that's how much I love you. Because I did send him. I do accept you. I I did send David to rescue my people in the Old Testament. And I sent the better David to rescue my people forever in the New Testament. To make my people into my church. Like That is what God has done, but he chooses people. In choosing you and me to be part of his church and part of his people, part of his family, to call us his sons and daughters, his children, he's choosing people who could never, ever deserve it. He doesn't look around and say, hey, give me the best ones and I'll pick them. There aren't any best ones, first of all. But then he says, give me all the outcasts and the rejects and the failures. Give me the people that have messed up so much and are so broken that nobody would ever think it would be them, that they don't even think it could be them. And I will come and I'll tell them this word of grace, that I don't choose them because of them. I choose them because of me, and so I really choose them. They're not disqualified. They're not done. It's not too late. They're not too far gone because it doesn't depend on them. That's the the gospel that we see even built into God using David right here and then all the more when Jesus comes and gives us the fullness of the story and he chooses you and me. So God chooses people who could never deserve to be chosen. And let that truth humble you, that it would remind you of who you are before God chooses you. That you would have an accurate view of yourself, and you would never think, I got chosen because of me. I got chosen because I deserve to be chosen. Let it humble you, and then let it also just wash over you with hope and joy and affirmation and confidence because he did choose you. And it's grounded in him. And when it's grounded in him, it's not changing and it's not going away. You didn't earn it and you're not going to lose it. He gave it freely of himself because that's who he is in his very nature. It's what he does. It's how his glory is shown the most. When the answer, when the answer for you is why? Like why are you part of God's people? Why has God accepted you? Why will you worship God forever in heaven? Why would God give you eternal life? What, what's the, and you say, because of God? <laughs> it's glory for God forever. Praise and worship for God forever. If you were to point yourself, well, because I did this, because I did that, do you see that if the answer is about you, you're robbing God of the glory and the praise and the worship and the honor that he deserves? He's designed this whole thing in a way where when he gives grace to you and me, and that is a beautiful and wonderful thing for us. It is so good for us to receive his grace. But when he gives grace to you and me, that's glory for him. And if we build a system and a religion and an approach to life where we point to us instead of him, I don't care how good it looks, how many good things you do, how impressive you make it look, how shiny your armor is and how big your weapons are and how many battles you win, you're robbing God of his glory. And your good things and your achievements in life are sin because they become about you instead of about him, and your life is self-centered instead of God-centered, and you're doing what we've all done all the way from the Garden of Eden till now, where we move God off of this rightful place in the middle, and we say, it's not about you anymore, it's about me, which was exactly where Emery took us this morning when she started us up here on, it's not about you, (laughs) it's about God. And when by faith you live a life that shows that, this is what your life's supposed to be about. When you turn away from that truth, whatever expression it takes in your life, that is sin. So God chooses people who could never deserve to be chosen. What's another truth that stands out to you about God? Okay. 
God listens to our prayers. Yeah. When God topples our trials, they become smaller and less powerful. Yeah, with, with Goliath, like, first of all, David doesn't have a sword. And secondly, Goliath is nine feet tall, and David's this little shepherd boy. He's not cutting off Goliath's head. But God does this really unexpected thing, and he takes this stone and this slingshot, and Goliath goes from this really tall, giant warrior with all this armor who's unapproachable and unbeatable to this big lump of flesh laying on the ground, right? That's when David cuts his head off. That God makes Goliath into something that David... Goliath is something that David can't handle. God makes him into something that David can handle. And this is, this is what it looks like spiritually in our lives. That God is not going to walk you up to stuff your whole life that you can handle on your own. And if people tell you that God will never give you more than you can handle, that is not true. David could not handle Goliath. If what they mean by that is God will never give you more than you can handle on your own, that is not true. Because the deal is God doesn't want you to handle it on your own. (laughs) Why would he give you stuff you can handle on your own when everything that he wants for you in your whole life is to rely on him and not on yourself? Because here's the thing, the way that I'm wired up, and I'm almost guaranteeing the way that you're wired up, is if you can do it on your own without God, you'll do it on your own without God. If he gives you the chance to rely on yourself and not on him, you'll rely on yourself and not on him. And so he comes, and it doesn't always feel like mercy and grace. But that's just because we don't get it. Like We don't see things the way they really are. But he comes in mercy and grace, and he says, the most important thing for your heart is to know me and rely on me and trust me and depend on me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you stuff in your life where you have to rely on me and trust me and depend on me. You, it will be too much for you. And then we either respond in one of two ways. We get bitter and angry, and it hardens our heart. We're like, forget you if you're going to make me go through this. Or it breaks us, and it humbles us, and it draws out faith inside of us. And we look to him, and we say, I can't. It's true, you're right, I can't. It's too much. But you can, I know who you are, I believe you. You've shown me over and over and over. You were faithful with the lion, and you were faithful with the bear. And now here's something bigger than both of them, but you're still the same. And if you were enough there, you'll be enough here, and so I trust you. Do for me what I can't do for myself. And he teaches us to rely on him and to depend on him. And then when we do, he takes this thing that we could never do that's too much for us. And he destroys it. (laughs) And he he lays it at your feet and says, here, now, now that you're relying on me, now that you're dependent on me, you can handle this with me. You can handle this in my strength. You can handle this by my grace. You can handle this when my spirit lives in you. But that's the only place you can handle it. And so, yeah, that, that God takes things that are way too big for us and he handles them for us and he turns them into things that we can handle when he's the one doing the work. What else stands out to you? Yeah, God doesn't need the world's, you know, and specifically here, the world's forms of protection. Security. And you could say, just in general, if you want to, the world's resources. Like all the things that the world will say, here's how we're going to accomplish something. Here's how we're going to bring about. God doesn't need that. Doesn't need 
<laughs> there you go. God doesn't need the world's forms of protection, security, the world's resources. God, you can say God has his own, or you can say God is his own. Like within himself, who he is. David says, I, I'm not going to win this battle by, by sword or by spear. It's the Lord. I'm gonna, not by the Lord's sword and spear, but by the Lord. He's going to win this battle. The God who is sovereign over all of history and every event and every moment, he can make this little stone lodge in that giant's forehead. And it'll be enough. <laughs> what else stands out to you? A God-fueled, unpredicted victory can spark a movement, but we always must consider him first. Yeah, I mean, what you see here is that it is significant that David walks in not saying, hey, I can do this because I can do this. He doesn't walk in saying, I can do this because I'm so good with a slingshot. You know, that, that's the other way that if we're not careful, it's like, yeah, I don't have a sword, but I got my slingshot and I'm pretty good with it. That's not his confidence. He says, I had to fight the lion and the bear. Look at it right here, because this is this isn't just the key to this story. This is the key to the whole Bible, and he says it so explicitly. It's not like he says, hey, I've gotten a lot of good experience fighting lions and bears, and because of that, I can draw down that experience, and I'm ready. That's not what he says. He says, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear. When he fought the lion and the bear, David didn't primarily learn something about himself. He learned something about God. And it wasn't, I learned something about myself, and that means I can do this now with this giant. It was, I learned something about God, and that God is exactly the same. The same God who rescued me from the lion and the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. It was, do you see that it's because of who God is? That because David saw God rightly, David was ready to be used by God in this way. Because David saw who God was, it gave David confidence and faith in God and then confidence to step out and do something that David never could have done on his own. But it's all grounded in who God is. And so we must always consider him first. David shows up and everything on his mouth, like he's talking to the king of Israel here, he's like, God will be enough for me. And then he's walking out and he's looking at Goliath and everybody's watching and listening. He's like, God will deliver you to me. And so because he's speaking about God in that way, there's no question for anybody there like, oh, David can do this, or when it happens, David did this. David was trusted in himself. David was reliant. On... But they know that it's about God. And when God does what he does, you're right, they see what God does through David, and you see them emboldened at the end now to chase. Like, they, they've been standing there for 40 days, scared to fight, scared to do what they're supposed to do, scared to do what they're trained to do. And then we see them chasing down the Philistine army, defeating the army. That God does, he uses David, this one person who's looking to God and knows who God is, is trusting who God is, and is willing to speak and tell other people who God is. And he uses that to start a movement within his people, within his nation, where he does something and he wins the entire battle through his people because somebody was looking to him, considering him, saying, it's God who does this. Be that person. Be that person who sees who God is in your own life, who sees the hand of God, who knows God intimately and personally and knows the truth about God, and it changes you in such a way that you just start telling other people, this is who God is. This is who he is. Believe who he is. Let God start a movement this way through your life, through this church, where we say, this is who God is. This is who God is. He's done it here, and 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 he's the same God. And if you see, if you ever see who he is, he'll, he'll melt your heart and move in your heart in such a way that he's going to unleash things in your life that only he could do. Somebody else had a hand up back here. Yeah.
Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, like this motivation is here's everything the king will do for you. All the worldly rewards that he will give you if you will go fight this guy. And by the way, just notice here that there's always a limit. No matter how much we believe in worldly resources and believe in our own abilities and would rely on ourselves and think, give me better armor, give me a better king, a better leader, a better army, whatever it is, there's always a limit. Because all that, all that do, is, do, is appealing to your flesh and your self, like self, self-reliance. I want to earn this for myself. Do I desire that for myself enough to go out here and risk myself? Can I pull this off? But there's a limit to that. Like, it can only take you so far because they come to this point like, I can't kill Goliath. <laughs> you can offer me all the riches in the world and I'm not going out there because I'll be dead and I won't have it. <laughs> like, there's only so much that the world and the flesh can do to motivate people. Even in religious circles where we make people look really good and really shiny and really pretty and we behave really well, we're, we're willing to go as far as we can go. And as soon as it pushes us beyond that, we're like, no, I'm not doing that. And you'll see it. You'll see it flare up in people so fast. And, and we think that we've built this system that works really well until the whole thing breaks down, until it's too big for us, until it's too hard for us, until we can't do it. And then we don't have an answer. And we all just sit there like, I'm not doing that. Are you going to do that? But what happens here is that the truth of who God is a real experience with God himself, the grace of God to rescue you from a lion, the grace of God to rescue you from a bear, it takes you to a place that flesh and self can never take you. Where, where no one in the entire army is motivated by a belief in their own abilities or a desire for their own reward. But David selflessly is motivated by the name of God. The glory of God. I will not let God be spoken of like this. That it, it drives him to a place that worldly answers and worldly resources can never take him. That there is more power in the gospel. There is more power in the grace of God than in all the resources of the world. And so yeah, that, that the name of God is more valuable More powerful, more important, than all the riches in the world. What else stands out to you? God delights in the unconventional and unorthodox. And, and I think we've, we've, I've hit on this a lot. At least one of the reasons, and there may be a hundred other reasons, but at least one of the reasons is because if we do things in a conventional and orthodox way, we end up just thinking, well, this is the way it always happens. Like, when people do this, this happens. I did this, this happens. And God is showing up, telling his story, revealing who he is. He's like, I've got to do this in a way where you'll know that I did it. Not you. Not the world. Not your plan. So I've got to do something that you'd never do. I've got to do it in a way that you'd never do it. I've got to do it in a way that wouldn't work if it weren't for me. And then when you see that, you'll know it was me. That's what we, you know, like if, if Saul goes out there on day one and fights Goliath, everybody's like, look how great our king is. Our king's better than everybody else's king, so let's go conquer all the other nations. That's what everybody was doing, right? Give us the best king, the strongest king, the biggest warriors, the biggest army, and we'll go fight everybody else because we know we're better than them. And so God says, here's what I'll give you. I'll give you a king who's a coward and an army who won't fight. And then I'll send a shepherd boy with no armor and no battle experience with a slingshot. And when that giant dies, you'll know I killed him. And like that is what he's still saying to you and me today. And just uh, the million ways in our own life and our church. Well, how often, listen, 
Pray for me that I'll say this clearly right now in a way that's healthy for us as a church. Just, just real quickly, let's pray together. Father, help me say this in a way that sets us free from the worldly approach that we take to our spiritual life and to the church so often and make this really profitable and fruitful. Please guide my words right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. How often do we build churches just like you would build an Old Testament army? And we're like, give us the biggest king, the strongest, the best looking, the most impressive that the most people will rally behind so that we can get the biggest army that we can get. And we're going to count our army every week. And then give us the most impressive weapons, facilities, right? Give us the most impressive armor. Let us, let us look the best we can and, and let us pull all of our resources to make our kingdom look. And if we've got the best kingdom and the best army and the best king, then we'll be the best. And you know what we'll do? We want to make our kingdom look so good that people leave their kingdoms and come to our kingdom. Like, nobody wants to come fight against that army. They'll join that army. And we put all of our trust in all of these human resources, and we build this thing that humans can build. And you know what you get when you do that? What humans can do. And so, you know, with Saul here, like, they find the guy that, it's just a few chapters earlier that they pick Saul, tallest, most handsome. Like they, they look at our king. We want a king. God's saying, I can be your king. Like, no, we want a king. And so they pick Saul. Well, they get what you get when you pick your own king like that. When you trust people instead of trusting God. And then even with David. We've already talked about the fact that David isn't this, it's not that Saul's not good enough, so David's better than Saul in this story, right? He's not bigger than Saul. He's not stronger than Saul. He doesn't have better armor than Saul. He hasn't fought more battles than Saul. He's not more experienced than Saul. He's not more skilled than Saul. The problem's not that Saul's not good enough, so we need a better king. But that's our, that is our solution, right? Well, we thought this king was going to be good. We need a better king. <laughs> Give us a better version of that. No! You need God. You need Jesus. You need him to rescue his people. You need God to send Jesus. I mean, that's, so the other thing when we read this story, I'm, I'm bouncing all around here. So we read this story, we think it's about David, and then we compare ourselves to David and think, I need to be more like David. Listen, first of all, it's not about David. We've seen that, right? It's about God. And then David says it one more time right down here. When he talks to Goliath, we looked at the one already up there in 37, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. This is 45. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Like, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. And then when this battle's over, what was the purpose of this story? Should you learn things about David that apply to your life? No. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That's why this happened initially. That's why it's written down in the Bible. And when you read it, this is what you should know. So anyway, we think, okay, this is about David. Now, we've got to be like David. Listen, even if that were the case, you're not David. I'm not David. You know who you are? You're the Israelite army who's scared to death because you're facing a giant that you can never defeat. You are looking at a battle that's too big for you, and you can't win, and you're refusing to do your job. That's who you are. That's who I am. And you can say that I'm part of the Israelite army with you or right now in this role that I'm Saul, the coward king who can't defend his people, who can't lead his people into battle, who's not willing to do it, who's scared to death because that's too big for me and I can't handle it and I can't do it. And you know who's David? Jesus shows up and fights the battle you were supposed to fight but didn't. Jesus shows up and he's the king that leaders like this were supposed to be and they weren't. Jesus shows up unexpected, insulted, rejected. Everybody looking at him saying, you're not good enough. You don't have the credentials. Look at the family you come from. You're too poor. You're not educated. How dare you tell us about God? Jesus shows up rejected by his own people and he goes out and he fights their fight for us and he wins a battle we could never win and he rescues his people. That's our hope. 
That's our hope. Jesus is the greater David, and you and I are the army of Israel, and we are Saul, and we need somebody to rescue us. And so where I was going to go, and when Keith and Carol missed their flight this week, um, for those of you that, you know, you keep up with the religious world, they were at the Southern Baptist Convention, and you may know that there's been terrible stuff come out in the past month about hidden sin and unconfessed sin and covered up sin in the Southern Baptist Convention. It's the largest non-Catholic denomination in the United States. And there's just been this, this intentional and deliberate plan to say, hey, if this bad stuff comes out, think about how it would affect us. So let's hide it. Let's not admit it. Let's cover it up. And it's all come to light. And, uh, and a whole lot of people are having to deal with the mess and the hurt and the pain of all that coming to light when it's been hidden for so long. And uh, I don't know all the factors in it, but I'll tell you one that I think is a real factor. It's when we set up people to be a king like Saul. Like, here's our hope's not in Jesus. Our hope's in this kingdom that we can build and our resource and how impressive is our king and how impressive is our army and how impressive are our weapons and our armor and all that stuff. And we build it on that king. When your king can't live up to your view of him, the whole thing crumbles. But we love this thing too much now to let it crumble. So we can't admit that our king can't live up to our view of him. So what do we have to do? We have to hide it. We have to keep it out of the spotlight. There's not a place for open and honest confession of, yeah, I'm Saul and I'm scared to death and I need Jesus to rescue me. Yeah, I'm David and I'm conceited and there's wickedness in my heart and I need Jesus to rescue me. Yeah, the only people who will ever lead are broken, sinful people that God has chosen by His grace and they never deserved to be. They weren't chosen because they deserved to be chosen. And when they fall and need grace, then we say, you've fallen and you need grace. Go heal for a while, but we love you and it's okay and it was never built on you. It's not all shattered because you fell. It was built on Jesus. Jesus is our hope and Jesus is still here and Jesus is enough. And this thing that you're struggling with, we already knew that about you because we actually believe the gospel. You're not Jesus. You're Saul. You're the army of Israel. But we build this man-made thing on man's personalities, man's charisma, and man's ability, and we can't afford for man not to live up to that then. And we create an environment where we're not honest. We can't afford to be honest about our brokenness and our sin. Like just, I've tried in the time that you've known me to say, you know that I blew up my life several years ago with sin and unfaithfulness, but don't think, oh, well, he blew up his life, but he got it all together. That's why he's up there now. Listen, my heart, I am so selfish, and I am so self-centered, and I am easily discouraged. I am impatient, and I am easily frustrated, and I can simultaneously be so insecure and not trusting the work of God enough to overcome my insecurity and at the very same time be so arrogant. I don't even know how you pull that off. Where I just look at everybody else and it's like, well, you look, no, that's terrible too. How you can be that insecure and that arrogant at the same time, you just have to be a master of sin. And you can laugh and it's fine if you chuckle with me, but I'm telling you, apart from Jesus, my heart is a mess. And I don't stand up here so that you will think, hey, if he comes and teaches, we're going to get something good and something good's going to happen. And we didn't, you know, no. Like if Jesus shows up and rescues me and Jesus shows up and rescues you, something good's going to happen. And we, we have to get to the place where we believe the whole gospel enough that we would start with, I'm the type of sinner that the gospel says I am. And if I hide that and you hide that and we create an environment where we all hide that, the really scary thing is, do we believe the gospel? 
if, if it's not okay to say, I'm a sinner who messed up and I have sinned, how do you believe the gospel? Now, it's not that your sin's okay. It's that Jesus has dealt with your not okay sin in such a way that you're okay now. <laughs> this is why he came. David has to show up here to rescue God's people because God's people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. They're not trusting God the way they should. They're not fighting the battle they're supposed to fight. They're scared. They're cowards. They're protecting themselves. They aren't being, Saul's not being the king he's supposed to be. The army's not being the army he's supposed to be. And in the middle of them not doing what they're supposed to do, God shows up and saves them. And you haven't done what you're supposed to do. And I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. And it shouldn't even be shocking to us when we find that out about each other. If you just, just come and say it, admit it, this is the place where God shows up. This is the people he shows up for. And you can admit how awful it is. And you can admit how awful you are because it doesn't depend on you. He loves you. And he has sent the greater David to rescue you. And so we have to believe that gospel. Believe what the gospel says about how wretched our hearts are and then believe what the gospel says about how wonderful his grace is. But you won't ever really believe that you need this type of grace and you won't ever really believe that this type of grace is true unless you know this is who you really are. Like when you hide from an admission of how broken you are and how sinful you are and how much you need Jesus, when you hide from that, Ultimately, you're hiding from a real belief in his grace. And so whatever God does with you and me and with us as a church, whatever plans he has for us in the next six months, in the next five years, I pray that whatever he has, we will say, we want what you have for us and not what we can do on our own. We're not going to build our own thing. We're not going to trust ourselves. We're not going to rely on ourselves. We're not going to build something that the world could build apart from the work of God and then celebrate what we've done. And then we're certainly not going to do, this is the most dangerous thing of all, that we do so much in our religious world because we've learned the right language, right? We've learned how to say it the right way, even when our hearts aren't right. We're not going to build our own thing with our own resources and then come in and say, look at what God did and praise you for something that you never did and we never trusted you for. We did it ourselves, but we know that if we say that, it sounds too bad and we've learned not to say things that sound bad. Let us just sit here and say, God... Send David. Send Jesus or we've got no hope. Do an unexpected work that only you can do. Show up in a way where when we see it, we'll know it's you and we can honestly say, God did this. This is the work of God. Like I pray that he would work in our hearts in such a way that that's all we want. That we, that we wouldn't even want the stuff we can do. That we wouldn't look at Saul and say, I want you to be braver. I want you to be stronger. Go fight for us. I don't want Saul. I want Jesus. We need Jesus. And so I pray he keeps working that in our hearts. I pray he keeps showing us who we are and who he is. And we trust him more and we believe him more. And we keep looking to him. And, and every day when we're out by ourselves watching the sheep and the lion and the bear show, we realize that's a moment with God. That's a moment of God speaking to you. That's a moment of God showing you who he is. Be listening for him. Hear him every day in your life. Because then when these moments come, whatever they are, when you're facing Goliath, you'll already know who God is. And God was bigger than the lion. God was bigger than the bear. And God's bigger than Goliath. That's the story today. God is so big and so great. Whatever you face in your entire life, God's bigger. God's bigger than that lion. God's bigger than that bear. God's bigger than that giant. 
God is so big and so great that God can take a weak, rejected shepherd boy who's the youngest, smallest in his family, and God can use him with no armor, no sword, no spear. God can use him to kill a giant. That's who God is. That's who your God is. That's who our God is. And so let's pray right now and ask him to be doing this in our hearts and let's worship him for who he is. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this time, for the truth of your word. Thank you that you sent your first David 3,000 years ago to rescue your people when they were scared to death and weren't willing to fight their own battles and couldn't have done it even if they tried. And then thank you that you sent the second David in Jesus, the true David and the greater David and the better David, to rescue all of us as your people. When our sin was too big for us, And our debt was too big for us. And the battle was too much for us. And we were never going to win. And we weren't even trying to fight it. And you sent Jesus to rescue us and deliver your people. Father, I pray that right now in this moment that we will look at the work of Jesus in an even greater way than the Israelites looked at the, the work of David that day. And the way that it swelled up in their hearts And they charged forward, believing that you had delivered them, and they won this battle. Father, I pray that we will look at the work of Jesus, and it will swell up in our hearts. And we will know that you have won this battle. And that we will be unleashed to charge forward into your world. And to make you known. And to make disciples. And to build your kingdom. And to advance your church. Father, it's your battle and it's your work. And we trust you. Thank you that we can. Thank you that you have shown us that we can. God, help us believe you. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.